Hey, today we are launching a new series called Unexpected, and it'll take us up to Christmas. And to say the least, 2020 has been somewhat unexpected, hasn't it? I mean, think about when you were writing your New Year's resolutions back in January or December, and um, a lot of pastors did a 2020 vision series to start the new year, right? And that lasted till about March. Um, I didn't. I was like, whew, escaped that one, right? Um, <laughs> but you didn't know your New Year's re- resolutions, you know, in a couple of months would change from all the big goals you had to just finding toilet paper somewhere, <laughs> right? It's been a little bit unexpected, hasn't it? And, you know, one thing this year has highlighted to any, anybody paying attention to this whole thing um, is how terrified the world is of death and to what lengths we'll try to go to avoid it. I mean, that's just kind of obvious on the, when you look, right? Um, which is interesting because the last time I checked, um, the, the rate for like getting out of here alive is pretty much 0%. I've checked that one recently. Unless, in, in <laughs> yeah, we've had, a, we've had a couple, right? Unless uh, Jesus comes back, right? But yeah, I'm going to get kind of serious because just right off the bat here. Because I think the fear that the world is experiencing, I think fear is a symptom of a society that has drifted away from an anchor point and a trust in God. In fact, when it, when it comes to death... Um, and what comes after. I think most people's strategy in our culture, if you just talk to your, some of your coworkers or friends, maybe some family members, is kind of just like, yeah, you know, like, la, 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 don't think about it, right? I think for a lot of people, that is kind of their mode of operation when it comes to thinking about these things. And then most people, you know, confront death um, at points in their life, at, you know, the loved one or the funeral of a loved one, or moments like that where, you know, it's kind of in your face and you have to confront it. But other than that, I think most people try, just try not to, to think about it. It's interesting, since the 70s, even though overall people's trust, people's um, belief in God has reduced somewhat, you know, the number of people that believe in God, actually the number of people that believe in an afterlife has gone up. So about 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife, that there's something after this life. You know, probably the other 20% are those that would be more just from a naturalistic uh, worldview or atheistic worldview, which is basically, you know, all we are is brainwaves and, and matter, and when our heart stops beating and our brainwaves stop, we cease to exist, right? That would be the other viewpoint. But most Americans believe some version of the fact that something there's something after this life, that this life isn't all there is. And when you start thinking about that and that reality that most people believe that, when you start thinking about life after death or what comes next, ultimately those conversations move very quickly to heaven and hell and the big ideas. And when we get to that, obviously we are in the realm of faith and we are in the realm because we haven't been there. We are in the realm of of having to trust another source of revelation. That there is someone outside of this life who reveals that to us. And that's what we believe, of course, if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus. We believe that the story is revealed to us in God's word. And culturally, 
you know, there's a couple dominant ways of thinking about approaching God and, and thinking about kind of the big question, you know, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? And I, I think, as I've talked to people, as I've observed, there's a couple of big ideas that people have around it. One of them is fatalism, which is the kind of idea that says, basically, you don't know me, my life, if you knew my life, if you knew the things I've done, if you knew my attitudes, man, I don't have a chance. And so if there is a heaven, I don't think I've got a very good chance of going there. And probably you've had some people communicate that sort of version to you, right? I've messed up too bad. I've just made a mess of things. Because of what I've done, I, I don't have hope of getting there. And then you have kind of this other version, which I think is a lot more common. And that's kind of the, well, I hope so version, that when you start talking about things of eternity and matters of eternity, people are like, yeah, I, I hope so. And usually what you'd see is people's minds start going through a grid, something like this. Well, I, you know, I'm not perfect, that's for sure. I'm no Mother Teresa. But I, I've been all right. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I've been pretty good. And basically what the I hope so idea is, is that somehow there's, you know, some kind of divine scales and my life will just barely tip the scales in the right direction. And I'm pretty sure, I hope, you know, that when it comes down to what comes next, to relating to God, to being accepted by God, um, I hope so. And I think I got a chance. And I think for a lot of people really that haven't thought about it deeply or dug into what the scripture says, that's kind of the, the, the two major dominant ideas in our culture when it comes to these things. And what you, what you notice is both of these ideas center on one common thing, what I have done or what I haven't done, right? They center on me trying to relate to God on the basis of what I have done, the good I have done, the tipping the scales in my favor that I have done, or what I haven't done. I haven't been good. Both of these ideas center on that, right? And so I think in a midst of a world that this year, maybe more than in, in many years, is starting to ask some of these questions, we come to the Christmas season. And you know what's amazing is the message of the first Christmas was presented to the people by angels as really good news. Really good news. In fact, the word in Greek is gospel. And when they'd come in with some good news, the herald would come in to a city, they'd go, gospel or good news, great news. And that's what the angels did when they announced the coming of the birth of a Savior for the world. They announced it. It's great news. In fact, we have four accounts of Jesus' life. I bet you know this, whether or not you're a church person, if you're just kind of checking out God's church in the, in the Bible, we're so glad you're here with us. And if that's you, you probably know this too, just like all the people that grew up in Sunday school. And that's, we have four historical accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, and they're called Gospels or Good Newses. That's what they mean. We have, what's interesting about these four accounts is two of them don't even mention anything about the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. Both John and Mark start at the ministry of John the Baptist, which is about 30 years into Jesus' life, Right? Luke starts um, with the announcement of an angel to Jesus' cousin's mother. Perhaps the most famous Christmas account is in the Gospel of Luke. 
And an angel appears to this elderly lady named Elizabeth who's been barren and says, you're going to have a child and he's going to be a great prophet. And of course, that prophet turns out to be John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. But Matthew starts his account of Jesus' life very differently. Here's how he starts it. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And let's see if you were trying to write a um, thriller, you know, Let's hook them right from the start. Let's see if you would write, start your, your bestseller this way. Here we go. Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then he just keeps going on and on and on through 2,000 years of names. <laughs> now, why would Matthew start his account this way? I mean, anybody like like thrillers or westerns? My wife's really into these that our, our friends got us into, um, this author, C.J. Box, and uh, she got me into it a little bit, so I'm moving a lot slower. She's been through like all of them already. But you know, if you're writing a, if you're trying to hook people and write a novel that's going to capture people right off the bat, I loved this, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. Check this out. This is how, how this starts. This is the hook. On the third day of their honeymoon, infamous environmental activist Stewie Woods and his new bride, Annabelle Bellotti, were spiking trees in the forest when a cow exploded and blew them up. Until then, their marriage had been happy. That's awesome. I read that, and I'm like, i got to keep reading. This is so interesting. It's like a Western intrigue uh, thriller kind of thing. Isn't that cool? (laughs) But Matthew's like, let me just drop this genealogy on you. And for most of us, when we're trying to get to the the Christmas story or reading, you know, the book of Matthew, which is, I mean, seriously, if Matthew had realized he was writing the first sentence of the New Testament— which would be part of the bestseller of all time, the Bible, right? I think if he realized that, maybe he would have put a little more thought into hooking you right off the bat, no? But actually, he did, and I want to show you why. First, first off, he's writing a historical account of the life of Jesus, okay? And second, he was writing to a Jewish audience that had been waiting expectantly for Messiah for hundreds of years. And so the words he puts right in the very start of this are, in fact, the most compelling things you could read. The story of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. You know, the one we've been expectantly waiting for for hundreds of years. That's the biggest news anyone could ever tell. And then he connects him to all the most important people he needs to be related to. David. Why? Because the Messiah would be a descendant of David who would rule on the throne forever. So the son of David, Abraham, he's from the Jewish line, right? And Judah, the forefathers, and then Judah. And Judah is the kingly line, the one who Messiah is prophesied. So right in the first sentence, Matthew was saying, here's Jesus, he is the Messiah, and he's connected to all the right people he needs to be connected to. But then Matthew does something very unexpected. How many of us, if we're um, trying to put our best foot forward, 
we try to leave some of our embarrassing moments kind of under the rug. Like, we don't let people know about those till they get to know us a little bit, right? You don't, like, really air all your dirty laundry on that first date, do you? It's like, yeah, we'll just, we'll tell that one later. Matthew here, check out what he does right at the very beginning of this book. Now, remember, in this time in history, uh, basically the only histories were written by hired historians that were paid for by uh, famous generals or military leaders or kings or emperors. And they were paid, the historians were paid, to record the accounts and to make them look good. And so if there was a battle that went well, they would play that up. And if there was a battle that didn't go well, they would kind of shove that one under the rug. And if there was a son that did great things, they would play that one up. And if there was you know, a son that sort of you know, didn't really make anything of his life, sometimes they just leave those out altogether. Because the goal was to make the person who had hired the historian look, look good, right? The emperor or the king. And so in that, in Matthew's history, he does something very, very intriguing. It's no surprise he drops the names of some of these famous forefathers. But then what he does, and remember, he is trying to convince people right off the bat that Jesus is the divine Messiah, the Son of God. The Messiah. The Holy One. He's trying to convince people that's the purpose of his writing. And he goes on right after these guys you'd expect, right in the first sentence, to introduce some very unexpected characters. Check this out. I'm going to pick it up at verse 3. So Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this is strange for a couple of reasons. The first one is because Jewish genealogies typically only included men, just part of the culture in this day, right? And, and the first thing, like right in the first opening sentences of his history and his attempt to convince everyone that Jesus is the divine son of God, he throws in a woman and he'll go on to throw in three more women. And not just any women. I mean, he could have picked like Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, you know, the the ones that, in fact, even to this day, um, in the Shabbat meal, when they bless, when Jewish people bless their daughters, they bless them and say, may you be like, you know, Sarah and Rachel and Leah and, and Rebecca, these great women of the faith, right? And Matthew doesn't put in any of those. He starts with Tamar. And let's just say, this is a story that when we read it in church, we kind of leave some verses out because some of you keep some of your kids in. And we want to let you have those conversations with your kids when you're ready to, if you know what I mean, right? There's a little bit of incest involved in this story. It's, it's not a pretty story. It's a weird story. And, and, and right off the bat, as Matthew rolls into this, any Jewish person would go, ooh, why'd you put her in? Why'd you make us think about her? Tamar. And then he goes on in the second half of this verse. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, I, Ram would be a good kid's name. We name our kids Bible names. I think like Ram. Anyway, um, Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, not the fish. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Oh, another woman in the genealogy. 
And you've heard of this one. You, you may not have heard of Tamar before, but you've probably heard of Rahab. Rahab has a, a, a name or a um, tag associated with her name, and you probably know it, right? Rahab the harlot. You know that. Can you get that 3,000 years later, almost uh, approximately? You still know when you hear the name Rahab, you think, oh, the harlot, right? In fact, what we, what we know from Rahab is uh, it appears like she becomes a follower of the one true God. So you're going to probably see her in heaven. So you got to be really careful when you walk up to her. Oh, you're Rahab, the, the lady from Jericho. <laughs> that would be polite. So just remember that, okay? Yeah. So Matthew now, the, the second woman he throws in this genealogy, Number one, she isn't even Jewish. And, and the second part of this is she has a profession that is illegal according to Jew, Jewish law and highly looked down upon. And yet, she's in the lineage of Messiah. And Matthew just has to pause and point that out to us. Isn't that interesting? It's intriguing. He goes on. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, now finally we get to a good story in there, right? Ruth. In fact, we preached through the book of Ruth a couple years ago for our holiday series, and we called it the Hallmark Chick Flick of the Old Testament because it's such a heartwarming story. And yet, the interesting thing in here is Ruth is not Jewish. In fact, she's from a place called Moab, and you don't want to be from Moab. Can I hear an amen? Uh, I think our Moabites come on Saturday night. So, <laughs> Yeah, in fact, one of the prophets like derides Moab. You don't want to be from Moab. And yet, so Matthew points out Ruth here. He goes on. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Well, here we go. That's the guy we needed to get to all along. You could have just skipped over all those other names there. And Matthew, it would have gone better, I think, and made your case better that Jesus, you know, is connected to all the right people. I don't know why you've been throwing us for a loop, but okay, now you're where we need to be. Let's just stick to the important stuff. He goes on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this is kind of crazy. Because Matthew, right in his opening sentences, he throws in all these kind of sordid characters. And then, instead, see, if you're a Jewish person, you just want to think happy thoughts about King David. He's like your hero. And yeah, you know, there was that one incident. But really, you just want to think happy thoughts about King David. And instead, right here, Matthew forces you to pause and think about King David's worst day. In fact, one of the most famous sins in all of history. In fact, let's do a little show of hands here. How many of you, before you walked in the doors today, and you can participate at home too, how many of you heard about David and Bathsheba before you walked in the door? Yeah, bunches of us, right? This is one of the most famous, famous sins in, in history. 3,000 years later, we're still talking about it. How many of you hope that in 3,000 years you don't do something so stupid that they're still talking about it 3,000 years from now? I hope. Yeah. 
The day when David took another man's wife and then had his friend, the man's or the wife's Bathsheba's husband, murdered in the front lines to cover up his sin. This is the thing that began to tear apart the kingdom and set up the kingdom to be split. And so right off the bat, Matthew, it's like if you're a Jewish person reading this, it would be like a slap in the face as he puts your hero there and then forces you to think about all the stuff you don't want to think about when it comes to your hero. Matthew goes out of his way to make us specifically question some of the people in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Solomon's mother, who was Uriah's wife, wink, wink, right? Why would Matthew do that? Why would he start his account of the life of Messiah this way? I think perhaps it's because his unexpected introduction is actually at the heart of the story that he was about to tell. See, his story would be all about light coming into darkness, life coming into an environment characterized by death, about God meeting the most unlikely people with unexpected grace. That's what the story's all about. It's a story of forgiveness in a world that knew only condemnation. And I think the reason he starts in this unexpected way has everything to do with Matthew's own story. And we get to that story in chapter 9. If you're following your Bibles, you can flip forward to Matthew chapter 9. And this is when Matthew first encounters Jesus. It was on just another day at the job, actually, in a little town called Capernaum. Capernaum's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in modern-day Israel, ancient Israel. And it's a huge lake. It's, say, it would go from about 13 miles long, from about the Clifton exit to the Fruta exit, and then eight miles wide, which is a couple miles wider than our valley. So a really big lake with port villages all around, port towns around this lake, and Capernaum was one of the port towns. It happened to be the place where Jesus kind of set up his center of operations for the period of his ministry that was in Galilee. And so this is Jesus' home base. So no doubt Matthew had heard about Jesus before. Everybody would heard about Jesus. Jesus was famous. He'd been healing people everywhere. Everywhere he goes, there's crowds. He said the most amazing thing and spoke with authority like no one else. Everybody knew about Jesus. And so on this day, Jesus pulls up with his entourage. Not pulls up. I guess he would row up, right? Row up. <clears throat> that would be like the modern-day equivalent of rolling in with the black Escalades, right? But they're in these little boats. Um, Anyway, chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is really an interesting thing here. And let me tell you why. See, Matthew puts in all these names earlier. Well, right here, Matthew leaves out some really interesting things. In fact, this is one of the most fun little passages to preach in Scripture. Because what Matthew leaves out is actually, he just, uh, if you want to go back to, to verse 1, it says, they brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Well, what we know, because this is the exact same account as we see in Mark and Luke, is actually there's some drama to this story. It's a cool story. 
Like Jesus gets out of the boat, they go into this house, and everybody packs in to the house so much that there's just no room to even move. You know, they're outside the doors, and these four dudes bring their friend. They hear Jesus is in town, and they got to get him to Jesus, and they show up with him on a stretcher, and as they show up carrying him, when they get there, they see there's no way to get through the crowd to Jesus, to get this guy to Jesus. And so what do they do? You've heard the story in Sunday school, flannel graph, right? You, they climb up on the roof and with pickaxes or something, they start digging through the roof as Jesus is down there teaching. You know, you start seeing, like hearing the clunk, clunk, and then the, the plaster starts falling down. And then before you know it, there's a hole. And then they lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. Plop, there he goes. And they stand there peering down through the hole. That's cool. And Jesus sees their faith. See, you'd think that would be kind of important to, to put in the story. But what's so interesting is Matthew skips over all that drama. He doesn't include all that drama. I mean, that's such a fun story. And you know why I think it is? Because he doesn't want us in the fun drama of the moment to miss the significant of this thing, significance of this thing Jesus said in verse 2 when he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He forgives the guy's sins. And after that, the religious leaders go crazy. They're just like, what? You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is just like, mm-hmm. And then the people go pouring out onto the streets, sharing the story. And of course, probably the, the, the biggest thing they're sharing about is then these guys broke through the roof and it was crazy, right? And then Jesus says this thing about your sins are forgiven. And Matthew, I think, just goes, whoa, wait, what? Yeah, he said, your sins are forgiven. What? And I think in Matthew's heart, something just rose up in that moment as he thought about his own life and the places he'd been. You see, because Matthew had a story, and it was kind of an unexpected story, probably growing up as a young Jewish boy. He didn't think his life would turn out this way. He thought he would make better choices. But as he's sitting that day at work, here's what happens. All these people pour out, and then Jesus comes out. And it says this in verse 9, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus comes out, and we don't know, but Jesus probably has his disciples following behind him, and we, we assume they might have had to go pay a tax. So Jesus comes out, and he walks up, to Matthew, the Holy One of God, the most famous person in all of Israel, the one who's healed all these people and said all these amazing things, the one that Matthew in his heart knows, I, I got no chance to relate to him. He would never be interested in me. Why? Because I blew it big time. I blew it. You see, a tax collector were some of the most despised people in the culture. 
See, the Romans would, would come in and as they took over, you know, outlying kingdoms and stuff and expanded the Roman Empire, they would charge them all kinds of different taxes. They would, they would charge them like port taxes and, you know, wine taxes and um, bridge taxes, lots of taxes. Some things never change, huh? They would charge them all kinds of taxes. But what they figured out is it doesn't work so well to have our guys there. And so they would recruit local guys and auction off the privilege to them to collect taxes from their own people because they would be able to charge the amount that they needed to collect for Rome and then tack on a surcharge on top of this. And in the process, tax collectors would become incredibly, incredibly wealthy. But they were also incredibly hated because they were agents of the enemy, extorting and taking advantage of their own people. In fact, they had two categories for bad people that you read in the New Testament a lot in the Gospels. You have tax collectors and sinners. In other words, tax collectors were so bad, they got their own category of bad. You know, the sinners were just all the other kind of nefarious types, but the tax collectors are so hated they got their own kind of bad category. The religious people would teach, actually, they, they were ostracized. They had no place in the religious community. And that was everything in that day. If you weren't part of the religious community, you were, you were no one, right? You would be ostracized in your village. Um, in fact, the rabbis would teach that tax collectors were so bad that God would not hear their prayers, even if they prayed and, and confessed. God would not even... Hear their prayers. They were that bad. In other words, you are cut off from God. You are cut off from everybody who's anybody. The only people that you're your friends are other tax collectors and sinners because they're the only ones that will even get close to you. And so Matthew, in this moment, I'm sure his heart's beating as he looks up and just the guilt and the shame. He thought he would grow up to be a respectable man. And then he made some really dumb choices along the way. And at some point, he made the most, the worst choice he could have made and become a tax collector. And now he's standing in front of the Holy One of God. And he knows he's busted. I don't know if he doesn't even make eye contact or looks down as Jesus comes up to him. And you can just see the other disciples like Peter, kind of a hothead, you know. I think Peter probably is hawking up a loogie over there, you know. It's like, I got something to say to him. James and John, the sons of thunder, they're just like, come on, let's go. They don't like this guy. And then Jesus. Jesus does the most unexpected thing. He looks at him and says this, follow me, he told him. You have to understand how wild, unexpected, shocking, unorthodox. Matthew's reaction must be just shock, pure shock. Follow me, Jesus says and smiles at him. And Matthew just gets up. <laughs> because Why? When Jesus invites you to follow him, it is the greatest 
honor in this world. And Matthew gets up and says, okay, where are we going? I'll follow you. And Jesus goes, okay, well, how about we go to your house? Matthew, you got a nice house, right? Matthew, yeah, I got a nice house. You know, pretty high-paying job. No friends, or at least good friends, but I got a nice house. Jesus says, well, why don't we go there? Let's, let's go eat dinner. In fact, why don't you invite all your friends? Matthew says, all my friends? You know who my friends are, right? And Jesus says, yeah, invite all your rowdy friends to come on over tonight. (laughs) And so they go, and they enter the house of Matthew, the tax collector. And it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Why would they come? Because Jesus just did something that sparked hope in their heart. If Matthew can be forgiven, maybe I can be forgiven. If Matthew could be accepted, maybe I could be accepted. Now, the religious leaders are outsized, and it says this in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're just mind blown. Now, they're not going in there. If they went in there, they would become ceremonially unclean. They would have to quarantine for seven days and then do a a, special washing thing. You're like, seven days? That doesn't sound bad. I'm like, 14 days, three times this year. But they're like, we don't want to go there, right? They would be ceremonially unclean. And so they motion, you know, come on, disciples, what's your master doing? What's going on here? And they're like, we don't really know. I don't know. He just said, follow you know. Can you see the disciples trying to talk to these religious leaders? <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> they're like, no, I don't know. <laughs> and so they just, they're just mind blown, right? And Jesus gets wind of this inside the house. And it says this, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I think he probably motions around the table. The sick. Which, if you're at a dinner party, you probably don't want to call your host sick. But the thing is, they're not offended by it, are they? Because they know they're separated from God. They know they have no hope with God. They know they are capital S sinners, right? They don't have to be told And this doesn't offend him. Jesus isn't condemning him. He is doing something no other religious leader would do. He's eating dinner with them. He's not condemning them. He's offering them forgiveness. He's offering them relationship. And so they're not offended by this. I love it. I used to go uh, do little concerts down at the Division of Youth Corrections and, um, and would speak a little bit and do some music and share the gospel and different things like that. And it was kind of cool. Number one, you have a captive audience. Uh, they, they can't go anywhere, right? <laughs> Number two, you didn't really have to even tell them they're sinners, right? They got it. They'd done some pretty bad things to get in there, most of them. And, and these guys, they were ready to hear the message that Jesus had because they understood how far they were from God. 
They understood that their lives went in an unexpected direction and they ended up doing careers like prostitution and being these people um, that they never hoped to be or wanted to be when they thought of what their life would turn out to be. They were ready to hear the message. Verse 13, then Jesus insults the religious leaders. These are the guys that had the whole Old Testament memorized by heart. And he says, basically, haven't you ever read your Bible? Check this out. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Jesus speaks for himself. He says, for I have come, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call those who think they on their own in their self-righteousness are good enough to please God on their own. I have not come to call those who just think, hey, I got it all dialed in. I got it all figured out. Hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I've come to call those who recognize they need me. Who recognize that there's an obstacle between me and God that needs to be removed and I can't remove it that recognize, man, I see the selfishness within my heart. I know the things that no one else knows. I know my attitudes. I see those icky things that just come up, and I go, wow, where did that come from? I know my heart. I've come to call the sinners. And so Matthew as he thought through his own story, as he thought through how his life had gone in such an unexpected way and he knew it was his fault. He knew he was to blame. His expectation was to be comfortable in this life, but ultimately he didn't have a hope when it came to what comes after this life. And he knew that. He had no place in the whole religious system and into that circumstance, the most unexpected encounter came into his life. Grace came into his life as Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. And so as Matthew thought of his own story, I think the reason he starts his account of the very first Christmas with these shocking characters that you would not expect. It wasn't just for shock factor. It wasn't just blowing up cows and things to make you want to read. It wasn't something from left field. It was the point of the story. He'd seen Jesus live out this mission. I have come to call sinners. Not the self-righteous who think they've got it all figured out. I'm here to call those to follow me who know they need me. And Matthew knew that sin was the heart issue that Jesus came to address because Jesus addressed it in himself, and he received grace and forgiveness. And so Matthew introduces Jesus as a Savior who was born and who would come to solve the problem of sin that separates us from God. I think maybe Matthew understood that on a personal level, maybe better than any of the other gospel writers did because of where he came from, because of his past. And that's the story. 
the unexpected story that we celebrate during this season. It's about a God drawing near to those who had drawn away from him. Because before he'd met Jesus, man, Matthew had drawn away just like all his friends. And for so many, you have a a line of thinking, you have a way of thinking in your heart. Maybe some of you in the room, maybe you're just checking out God Church and and the Bible you have a way of thinking in your heart that's, that's all centered on what I've done, either what I haven't done and I think I'm good enough and I, I think I've, I've got it figured out, or, um, man, I've blown it. I've blown it. I have lived my life in a way that I don't even know if I have a chance. And the message of grace and the message that the angels announced as good news, as really, really good news, is that even though you've drawn away from God, he's drawing near to you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to forgive you. And so Matthew introduces his account of the life of Jesus with a most unexpected genealogy of God working through God's grace, including and working through some of the most unlikely people. They weren't a gimmick. They weren't a trick to get people's attention. They were examples of God's grace that's been there all along. And now is fully revealed in Jesus. They're examples of God's mercy, of God's heart to save people. And so from these opening verses in Matthew chapter 1 that we just kind of glaze over, they're just names, 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 right? Get to the angel, the interesting Christmas story stuff. But Matthew says, no, no, I want to pause and highlight these and make you think about who Jesus is and who he has come to save And how shocking that should be. And from there, from this intro, he would go on to write the words of the angel to a a confused and hurt young man who was engaged to a woman named Mary who found out his expectations had just been dashed. And here's what the angel would say. And you know these words. Joseph, chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew knew that, and he understood that more than anybody else, perhaps, that wrote in the Gospels. On a personal level, he understood just how amazing and how unexpected the grace of God really is. And so as we close, let me just say, my hope for you during this season is if you're still approaching God from a platform of, you know, what I've done, I think I can tip the scales, I think I've done good enough. Or if you're approaching God from, man, I have not done the good things I should have. In fact, I've done the things I shouldn't have, and I don't think I have a chance. In fact, some of you, and you actually hear stories like this, people are like, I, I'm afraid if I walk through the doors of the church, the ceiling will fall down. It's like, I've actually never seen that happen yet. You, know, you never know, but... The grace of God wants to meet you where you are. And no matter how good you are, how consistent, you know, with church or, you know, reading, or maybe for some you, you were growing up, going to confession, right, or, or giving, 
The message of the gospel is it's not the things you do that open up a relationship between you and God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the message of the gospel. All have sinned. It's not the bad things you've done. It's not the things you failed to do that you're so ashamed of in your past. Because the good news of the gospel and the good news of this season is that the free gift of God is eternal life. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And let me tell you, that is good news. It was introduced as good news 2,000 years ago and it is good news today. And so as we close today, what I want to give you an opportunity to do is, is one of two things. If you want to stand with me right now, whether you're here in the room or you're at home joining us online, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this good news. And maybe you're not ready. That's okay. If you're not ready, I just ask you to continue to track with us in this series and to continue to explore Jesus and get your questions answered. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And then I want to talk to all of you because I, th I think there's the vast majority of you in the room and probably watching online as well that you embraced this good news years and years ago. But for some reason, the joy of the news, the wonder of the news, the amazement of the news has slipped away. In fact, some of you, you, you really don't even share this news with anyone. And I want to challenge you. Maybe it's time to really seek God, to, to reach out and ask him, God, why has why my heart grown numb to this news? Why do I have so many people in my life who maybe don't even know that I embrace this good news, that I follow Jesus? And maybe in this season, your challenge is, I'm going to actually have that conversation with my coworker. I'm going to ask, I know the situation and the circumstance they're going through, and I'm going to say, hey, can I pray for you? And then I'm going to pray for them right there, even though I feel really awkward. Or I'm going to invite them to church, or I'm going to invite them over for breakfast. Because this news is too good not to share. This, too, this news is too good just to bottle up and keep to myself. I'm going to pray that God works that in your heart. And for those that want to respond to Jesus in the room or online, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. So let's, let's bow our heads. And if that's you, you want to respond to this good news of Jesus, you can pray a simple prayer like this. There's nothing magic about the words. But Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I cannot make it to God on my own. And so I... I put my full faith and trust in you, Jesus, and what you did for me when you died and rose again. I believe you're the Son of God. I trust you, not in what I've done or, or what I haven't done, but I trust you fully and ask you to save me. In Jesus' name. Lord, and for all my other friends, I just ask that you would um, restore to them just the joy of their salvation that in this season, as we hear about and, and look at the good news of your unexpected grace, Lord, that it would be good news that really becomes um, just alive in our hearts again. 
that it would become so alive in our hearts that we would not be able to help sharing it with those around. Thank you for your incredible, unexpected grace, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.